Hell Pilot's Plain Tales, RAF Form 414, Volume 12. Year 2 of Porridge. That's an old term used by prisoners to describe their time inside jail, but was very apt as many of my fellow flying instructors and I had not volunteered for this particular job, and it was a long one, four years long. We kept it to ourselves, though, as it was hard not to smile at the unending enthusiasm of new students as they arrived. As I leaf through the pages of my logbook, I'm surprised now at the variety of people I flew with. I had my regular students, of course, and the one assigned to me especially, being a fine chap who was about as far removed from me as could be found. He was a very keen sportsman, and the RAF orienteering champion, which is a bit like mixing the torture of cross-country running with the confusion of map reading, and not a big drinker. I would have run to get away from a burning aeroplane or into the bar for a free drink, but that was about it. I flew with quite a few pilots senior to me who were brushing up on their skills before returning to flying duty, as well as air cadets and non-flying RAF personnel who were on jollies, plus a whole host of others. We visited uh, various airfields all around the UK, and in only a few weeks, I'd been to Abingdon, Chivna, Honington, Lambeda, Wittering, Liverpool, Ronaldsway, Walton, Lossiemouth, Shawbury, Kinloss, Coningsby, Lakenheath, and Church Fenton, to name just a few. There were also some flights where my newly acquired instructional skills weren't required. Our base was, for a reason I can no longer recall, putting up a 16-ship formation, callsign Palm Tree, after the flora that adorned the flying school's badge. I think it was a diamond of four four-ships, and I was helping out somewhere down the back. There were a few practices, and then the actual event when 16 Hawks, plus a whipper-in photography ship, and spare were to darken the sky over some dignitary somewhere. The briefing had already been a shambles. Everyone had supposedly assembled, and just before the start, the chief flying instructor strode in and shouted, Palm tree check-in! For some reason, each individual foreship had been named after the D-Day landing beaches, so it went, Sword check! Two, three, Four. Omaha check, two, three, four. Gold check, two, three, four. Juno check, two, three, four. All neat and very military. Just then, two more pilots wandered in late. Who are you? The CFI demanded. Er, uh, gold two and Juno three, sir. Too much very poorly suppressed laughter as the efforts made by their comrades to hide their absence were revealed to a red-faced and furious wing commander. The briefing continued, with a mention to all that on return everyone would, unusually, fly right-hand circuits to reduce the noise over a local village. The start of the trip was also far from auspicious, 
as when flying a holding pattern with this big formation over land, the leader discovered that he needed to fly through a tight gap between the 1,000-foot cloud base and some high ground, a technique nicknamed letterboxing. Not a problem for a single aircraft, but the 15 aircraft following him were all flying a little bit below him, steps down. The lowest was my old friend DL, at the back of the rearmost foreship. He was concentrating on the jet pipe of the aircraft a few feet in front, when suddenly everyone around him scattered like confetti, and DL looked ahead to see a ridge of Welsh granite staring at him in the face. Somehow, after negotiating this unexpected obstacle, everyone scrabbled to get back together, with the leader completely unaware of the debacle that was going on behind. After completing the flypast, our redoubtable leader returned everyone back to RAF Valley and lined them up on runway 32 for their usual break into the circuit remembering, of course, that they were going to turn right. He ordered all the four ships into line astern and then moved them from box four into echelon left. All sort of went well, considering that in living memory no one had ever done a circuit to that side of the airfield before, until the last four ship. Perhaps the leader of that bunch hadn't been paying attention at the briefing, or the fact that everyone else ahead of him had broken to the right. He, however, did what he always did, and pulled into his usual hard-climbing left turn, right into the other three aircraft in close formation on his wing. His number two was faced with a wall of red and white hawk, and bunted hard out of the way then gingerly pulled up and followed his leader. Number three pushed down harder, and number four hit the end stops in his bunt. After this shambles and a few choice swear words, everyone pulled up and followed him around. Number four was a fiery ex-Jaguar pilot who was ready to flatten his leader, but was gently restrained by the station commander who'd seen it all from the ground and promised to deal with him. The very next day was a much bigger affair. Based on the success of the earlier mass formation, no one being killed, we were going for the big one, a 34 ship. This was to celebrate RAF Valley being granted the freedom of Anglesey. Uh, freedom is an ancient tradition which goes back to Roman times, when soldiers were usually forbidden to enter a city in uniform or with weapons. The freedom allows military organisations the privilege of marching into a place with drums beating, colours flying and bayonets fixed. And in this case, for the RAF apparently, aircraft flying. 34 hawks were needed to make up the letters M-O-N. For those in the know, Mon is Welsh for Anglesey. But we wondered what all the English speakers would make of a big, badly spelt now flying around the island. Each letter took off in turn and held over the ocean to the south, waiting for the order to form up. 
The N consisted of 10 aircraft, and the fine chap in charge had decided to put all 10 into a long echelon while he hung around waiting. Now, 10 aircraft in echelon isn't an easy thing to fly. Any little wobble at the start becomes amplified down the echelon until number 10 is going up and down like a bride's nighty. The cloud base was little changed from the day before when the letterbox trick had been played. And when the formation ran out of space and needed to turn, the intrepid leader rolled everyone into a turn towards the echelon. This meant that the entire formation, like the wing of a huge aircraft, had to go down to stay in position. The number 10 position was, you guessed it, DL. He was holding close formation and looking up the long line of aircraft towards his leader. But in his back seat was a young student, along for the ride. As the formation banked, DL was forced lower and lower to stay in position until he heard a strangled squawk from the back seat. They had dipped so low that the wave tops were nearly lapping over his wingtip. Luckily, before he came home with a few Anglesey pollocks sticking out of his navlite, they straightened up again. Mon duly flew over Mon, and again all came home safely. In my case, all that good practice wasn't put to waste, as shortly after I was asked to lead a missing man fly-past of the base chapel to mark the funeral of a fellow member of the RAF who had sadly passed away. Before long, that first course came to an end, and we watched our students get presented with their wings and then joined them for a mess dinner, which was quite riotous. They went on to more exciting things. We had to stay behind, and before long their faces, now looking considerably happier, had been replaced by a new bunch of keen, eager and slightly nervous ones. The cycle was to continue for several years, but there was an occasional break to the routine. One was a jolly with our squadron boss to Bitburg, a USAF base in Germany, for a weekend spent driving a borrowed car up and down the beautiful Moselle, drinking fine Riesling whilst munching on the fresh asparagus crop gently poached in butter and admiring the many castles that lean over that mighty river. Then came an unexpected treat, I'd been given a general war appointment notice. Someone had apparently dreamed up the concept of recent frontline pilots in training roles returning to their squadrons in times of war. In practice, this meant that whenever my old squadron went on a major tachyval exercise, I would be recalled to fly with them for the duration. Woohoo! Phantoms, here I come! With all my flying gear piled up on my motorbike, I headed up to Scotland and presented myself to 43 Squadron to be met by blank faces. Apparently they hadn't received the memo. Not to worry, as soon as someone dug it out, I found myself doing a quick and dirty dual check, an instrument rating, and then I was let loose on the mighty beast again. A few more trips to brush away the cobwebs, and after a two-year absence, I was back in the saddle. Launched off on the first of several exercise sorties, I returned, but 
On landing, the brake chute failed. That wasn't a big problem, but it usually meant hot brakes, and with a bit of a tailwind that day, very hot brakes. Again, not a problem, but the idea was to use the full length of the runway, keep your feet off the brakes as much as possible, and try to stay moving until they cooled down a bit. Sadly, the tower had other ideas, and with a blocked exit, I was stuck on the end of the runway. When I was eventually allowed to taxi, I opened up the two Rolls-Royce Spays, but nothing happened. I gave it a bit more, and then a lot more. I was stuck, and once more, I was stuck on the damn runway, with welded brakes. Not an auspicious start, and a terrible place for the engineers to have to do a brake change. When I walked in to see raised eyebrows and a grumpy boss, I vowed to keep my nose clean, but on the very next sortie, motoring along at low level, chasing some inbound targets, my eyes were drawn inside the cockpit to a bright red caution light. All thoughts of finishing off a few more unfortunate bombers went out of my mind as I gazed at the legend written on the warning. Fire. As calmly as I could, I told Ian, my nav, Hey mate, we've got a left engine fire warning. I started the boldface items, those done by memory, and brought the left throttle back to idle, waiting the required five seconds, while Ian pulled out his emergency procedures checklist. The light remained on, glaring at me. Nothing for it now. I confirmed which engine it was, and then lifted the latch on the throttle and pulled it all the way back, turning off the high-pressure fuel cocks. The left engine wound down. Ian confirmed the next actions. Rat, extend, engine master off, engine bleed, circuit breakers, number one panel, 4C and 5C pull. Is the warning still on, he asked. Yes, I replied. Well, we need to check for signs of fire. If we're on fire, we eject. If not, then land ASAP. While all this had been going on, I'd put out a quick call to our fighter controller. Mayday, mayday, mayday. Foxtrot, Charlie Tango, 3-5. Engine fire. Wait. We had been on our own, and our targets had by now streaked away, so no good asking them for help. Ian craned his neck to peer as far back as he could, and I stared intently into the mirrors. We look okay, he said, and all I could see was the faint black exhaust of our remaining engine. Yep, it looks good. How our controller had contained himself, I'm not sure, but he'd been disciplined enough not to interrupt, but now, once I called him again, the floodgates opened. Squawk 7700, Vector 275 for Lucas. Emergency services are on standby. What's your situation? Well, we had 50 miles to go, and on one engine, so we weren't breaking any speed limits. If I needed to, I could jettison the tanks, but they were empty, so the Phantom was performing pretty well. It was going to take a while to get home, and in the meantime, another F-4 was vectored onto our wing to give us a look-over. He disappeared underneath and popped up on the other side. Everything looked pretty normal, he said, but I'll hang around till you get down. This was a welcome offer, as the North Sea could be a cold place. 
Having someone with us to mark our position if fire appeared and we jumped out would be great. The miles ticked down and still the fire warning remained, but I was getting suspicious of it now. The heat from an engine fire should have dissipated by now, and after a good visual inspection it was probable that the warning was spurious, but there was no point in standing anything down as we were almost home. Ian had flipped a car 37 to remind me of the single-engine landing procedures. A rat extend? Well, it was already out. Appropriate generator switch off, speed less than 350 knots, hydraulic gauges monitor, gear and flaps extend at a safe height with military power on the good engine. Overrun cable be prepared to use. Note with PC1 failed, it was, the pitch stability augmentation system is inoperative with no pitch org off caption. Before approach, a rack confirm ramps to override, calculate decision height. Well, it was good weather and we were light, so no extra allowance on our decision height was needed. Ian also briefed the overshoot. Max reheat without delay, your control with rudder, landing gear up without delay, maintaining angle of attack of 17 units. Once on finals, we flew the required long straighten approach, trimming the slip ball to the centre, selecting half flap and not exceeding 17 units angle of attack until we reach the threshold. As I thumped the Phantom in for our usual unflared landing and pulled the brake chute, we were chased down the runway by a couple of fire trucks, a doctor's car, an ambulance and a bunch of engineers. As we came to a halt, we were soon surrounded by disappointed firemen in shiny silver suits. I would have been happy to taxi in, but our chaps already had a tow bar attached, so we shut down and were ignominiously dragged to a parking spot in front of the squadron. As we had suspected, it turned out the fire warning had been brought on by a fault in the fire detection wire that surrounded the engine, but we couldn't have been sure of that at the time. I flew several more times, but after a couple of weeks of fun back with my old squadron, they sent me packing back to Valley. I'm sure the boss was glad to see me go. I'd been far too much trouble for his liking. Plane Tales is a featured segment of the Airline Pilot Guy Show. If you want to find out about that, then just go to airlinepilotguy.com. Plane Tales is also a standalone podcast, and if you enjoy these stories, then it would be wonderful if you could nip over to Apple Podcasts or your podcatcher of choice and perhaps leave us a review. A nice one, of course. Many thanks for listening.